Gospel, John chapter 5. I'm going to read the, the uh, first 15 verses here. Actually, maybe we'll just dump, jump right into it because the time is short. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would once again teach us, feed us, lead us, guide us. Lord, as we've watched this video today and all the different things we've talked about and watched over the years, we definitely need supernatural wisdom and guidance from your Holy Spirit and from your Holy Word. We ask you to bless this time of Bible study now in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After this, hearkens back to chapter 4. Remember the incident in Galilee. Jesus and the disciples went from Judea up to Galilee, or up geographically, but down alt altitude-wise. They went up to Cana, where Jesus had performed his first miracle, the turning of water into wine. And this nobleman from Capernaum, about 16 miles away on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, rushes over to meet Jesus in Cana to ask him to heal his son who's dying. Jesus just speaks the word, and this man's son is healed. And so after this, after that whole scenario, it's back down to Jerusalem again because there's a feast. John doesn't tell us which feast. There's no consensus among Bible scholars. Probably the largest percentage would throw their weight again onto uh, Passover. But the three mandatory feasts for Jewish men were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. It could have been any one of these feasts. Apparently, John didn't consider that to be of importance here in this narrative. So once again, leaving Galilee, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now they're in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And I've had the opportunity to go there a number of times. It's, it's one of the great sights there in the old city, I think, to see all these and because uh, layer upon layer has been built up over the centuries. And so the, uh, the pool network is, uh, is down below as you're looking down there. And there's a church right there called St. Anne's. And uh, it's really cool. That it's kind of a dome-shaped thing. And we like to go in there and sing. And it just echoes and reverberates. Some of you went. How, anybody that was on that Israel trip? Do you remember the Pool of Bethesda? And so it says it was by the Sheep Gate, and that's located north of the Temple Mount. It's believed that the sheep uh, used for sacrifice were brought in through this gate. And so the pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, it means house of mercy. Um, and again, that could have to do with two things. One, what we're going to see here in just a moment, but also the idea of the sacrificial animals being brought through right by that pool. But the Greek word translated here as pool can also be translated bath, indicative of a place in which to swim or bathe. And probably, I mentioned we've, we've been there, we've seen it, and so it's believed that the pool rediscovered in 1888. It was excavated. We believe that's the, the real one right near St. Anne's Church in Jerusalem. And this site had two twin pools surrounded by four porches or porticos and one porch down the middle 
separating the pools. Verse 3, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Kind of sounds like a modern-day hospital emergency room, doesn't it? And John tells us why these sick people were all gathered there. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. At a certain time, it says. So possibly, again, Jesus is here at the time of one of the feasts or festivals. So possibly at one or more of the three mandatory feasts, would be the certain time referred to here when this miraculous activity would take place. Now, John seems to be stating this not as a, a fable or a myth, but as a fact. Not all Bible scholars necessarily believe that, but then they would be the ones who tend to discount the miraculous work of God. This doesn't necessarily mean that the people saw an angel with their physical eyes, but that they were made aware of his activity by the stirring of the waters. We need to just take John's report here at face value, that this did happen periodically. And then whoever stepped in first, maybe that's where we get the term the quick and the dead, I don't know. But you might say the first one to step out in faith. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well. And that's why, again, this water complex was called House of Mercy. I think it reminds us our God is a merciful God who feels the pain of his children. It kind of makes me sad to think that there are many people who don't believe that God has any empathy, compassion. In fact, the Bible says he is the God of all comfort. He is a God of compassion. He does feel our pain. He created us. The people of Jesus' day did not have access, obviously, to the advanced medical treatment available in modern times. So in order to alleviate their suffering, one way that God did that was by moving in a miraculous way to help his people. There's a lot of examples in the scriptures, as you know, of this. Uh, In 2 Kings chapter 4, Uh, Some were healed by a purified pot of stew. 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman, remember him? He was healed by washing in the Jordan River seven times. Uh, Another person was healed by the touching of the bones of Elisha. Some were healed when the shadow of Peter fell upon them. Some were healed when Paul's handkerchiefs were laid upon them. But here's what we have to watch out for. These are all wonderful, miraculous things that took place. These aren't myths or fairy tales or legends. They're historical events recorded for us in God's holy word. But we should never try to use these unique, miraculous workings of God's spirit and turn them into a formula, which is what a lot of people have done. Hanky-panky ministries, for example. Handkerchief, hanky-panky. Okay. Me and my shadow fellowship. No. We need to take them all as what they are, miraculous acts of the Spirit of God. But God works differently in every situation and in every person. 
And when we get into trouble, it's when we try to package these things and turn them into a formula, which you've seen many people do. So now verse 5, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years, perhaps since birth. We're not told how old he was, but he may have been this way from birth. But as we'll see, his infirmity, whatever it was, resulted in lameness or paralysis even. And when a person's been in this condition for that many years, it's very difficult to imagine getting better, isn't it? After a certain period of time, there's just kind of a resolve, a resigning oneself to the fact that I'm always going to be like this. And yet we see that the man obviously possessed at least some degree of faith or he wouldn't have been there at the pool of Bethesda. So verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, interesting question now that Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? Jesus recognized the challenge this man faced in mustering up the faith and the courage to trust God for healing. Do you want to be made well? It might sound like a silly question, but regardless of the affliction, whether it's a physical illness or damage, injury, drug addiction, that's another type of illness, is it not? I'm, again, it's not just an illness, it's really a spiritual problem, but it results in an illness of sorts because you become addicted to the drug. It begins to tear you down, destroy you. You deteriorate, but you can't seem to escape from it. And again, people get into that hopeless mentality that I'll never be able to conquer this. So it could be physical, it could be a drug addiction, it could be a sexual addiction. There's a lot of those out there as well, including what was talked about in this video. And I think it was probably in the first half last week where the gentleman talked about the fact that it was not that long ago, 50 years ago or less, that this type of thing was categorized as a mental illness, as was homosexuality. If you go back to the older psychological manuals, these things were identified as mental illnesses, but now that's all been erased, and they've been embraced as being, quote, the new normal. To me, normal is normal. You can't have a new normal and an old normal. There's only normal. And so... Jesus asked this gentleman what you might think is a strange question. Do you want to be made well? But one must possess a genuine desire to get better in order to change. Is that correct? I believe it is. Now, let me give you some examples. Someone who's on disability, and I'm certainly not criticizing anyone, although we know that there's always certain people who will abuse the system. Someone who's on disability might prefer to stay sick rather than to go to work. So you have to ask that person, do you want to be made well? Well, I don't know. Things are working pretty well the way they are. Someone who's used to being taken care of might not wish to take care of themselves. Some people never step out in faith for fear of failure. That's another very real thing. Remember the story? Jesus and Peter, James, and John are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The rest of the disciples are there at the bottom. They've been trying to cast a demon out of this epileptic boy. Epileptic boy. 
That shouldn't be that hard to say, epileptic. Ep, 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 when your lips are dry, epileptic. They're trying to cast the demon out of this epileptic boy. And they're not being successful. So Jesus comes down with Peter, James, and John. The father comes directly to Jesus seeking his help. Mark 9, 23 and 24, Jesus said to him, the father, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that. That is so honest. That's so real. Yes, Lord, I believe, but help me believe more. You know, God honors a prayer like that. But Jesus asked the man a very important question. Now, you're here by the pool, but do you really want to be made well? Obviously, somebody had to bring him there and drop him off, right? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. So he apparently had at least a limited amount of mobility, but it wasn't enough for him to be the first one into the water. We don't know how he got there. We assume someone dropped him off, but they didn't stick around to help him into the water. I have no one to take me to the Benny Hinn rally. I have no, I shared this story, I think, before. Many years ago, I was with my music group in New Zealand, and we pray, played at a... Uh, I think it was a full gospel businessmen's conference or something along those lines. And this gentleman came up afterwards and he was talking about how he was really desperate to fly to America so he could get prayed for by Benny Hinn to be healed. And I said, I can pray for you right now. No, no, no. He had to get to America and be prayed for by Benny Hinn. Now, part of the message of this story here is that Jesus is the healer. He's the answer. We don't need a, a, a pool of water. We don't need Benny Hinn. We don't need Oral Roberts, and that's a good thing because he's dead. Yes, God many times uses human instruments to accomplish his purposes, but he alone, we have to remember this, he alone is the source of all healing and all goodness. But have you ever heard anybody say, hey, I went to see this, uh, this preacher, this televangelist or whatever, and he healed me? No, he didn't. God healed you, okay? God alone is the source of all healing and all goodness, James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Therefore, as I've prayed and said many times, it doesn't matter who signs your paycheck, God is your provider, okay? We need to always remember that. Anything and everything good comes, up, comes from him, no matter what the human uh, source may be, the human intermediary, ultimately it comes from God. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. You can't really blame him, but it kind of sounds like this guy is caught in a victim mentality. And a lot of people today are in that place. One of my best friends for many years, we served in music ministry together even, but one of his great stumbling blocks was he, he had that kind of a mentality that 
Everybody was always against him. Everybody was out to get him. And as I've said before, our, our human relationships and our relationship with God intersect. They're inseparable. As we perceive God, so we will perceive people and vice versa. And it ultimately led to a, a very sad and destructive life for him. That victim mentality. It doesn't come from God. God doesn't want us to be in that place. I always get the short end of the stick. You ever heard anybody say that? Everybody else is more blessed than I am, really? <laughs> well, obviously that's not true. There are some people who are a lot less blessed than you are. And maybe there are some that are more blessed, but then again, we don't necessarily go, know where all these so-called blessings really come from, do we? Do you know that the enemy is the prince of this world and he has a great deal of access to the resources of this world and he bestows them upon those who will do his bidding. Some of the most godly men and women who have ever walked this planet have been dirt poor and unhealthy. So faith teachers take that and put it in your pipe and smoke it. Don't allow yourself to embrace this attitude, folks. It's self-defeating and dishonoring to God. Paul said, I've learned how to be content with a little, and I've learned how to be content with a lot. And that was Paul's life as he traveled around planting churches, preaching the gospel. Sometimes people really blessed him with material substance. Sometimes he got nothing. And I experienced that early on when I was in a traveling music ministry for seven years. Never knew really what uh, we were going to get. For the most part, we never charged a fee. We just went on the basis of an offering and whatever meals they would provide and whatever lodging they would provide. And it was a great learning experience. If you perceive, even now maybe the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, and you perceive that you have in some way embraced this victim mentality, I encourage you to renounce it today. Give it over to God. Let it go. The Bible says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have victory through Jesus Christ. Take a hold of that truth. Renounce that victim mentality. And your whole life will change. All right, Jesus said to him, verse 8, Rise up, take your bed, and walk. And by the way, be prepared when you say yes to God, he will definitely challenge you to step out in faith. Okay, so Jesus asked the man, do you want to be made well? Yes. Okay. Rise up, take up your bed and walk. There's the challenge. If you tell God, I believe you, I trust you, He's going to put a challenge in front of you. Because Why? God already knows your heart. Who needs to know your heart? You do. It's like put your faith where your mouth is. Not your money, but your faith. And again, I'm not talking about that weird, you know, faith stuff that a lot of these guys preach. I'm talking about real, genuine faith, which, by the way, comes from God. He's the one who imparts that faith to us. But we have to participate by saying, yes, Lord, 
Do you want to be made well? Yes, I do. Immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. I think here's a, another great lesson for us all. When the lame man got his eyes off of himself and his problem and onto Jesus, he was immediately made well. He took up his bed. This wasn't like a king-sized sir to perfect sleeper. It was more of a mat or a pallet. Nonetheless, he picked it up and started walking. And that day was the Sabbath. Now, to me, that's the perfect day to get healed. But therein actually lies the problem, not for God, but for men. And here it comes. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. That's legalism for you. Not praise God you've been healed. We rejoice with you. As the elders and leaders of Israel, we celebrate this great miracle with you. No, hey, you're not allowed to do that. Matthew 23, 23 through 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Gee, sounds just like our world today. I've been telling you for years, the modern Pharisees live in Washington, D.C. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, there's nothing wrong with tithing, something that God requires of his people, the tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others done, undone, Blind guides you are who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Jesus described the scribes and Pharisees to a T, and he also described the people in many positions of leadership today. Training at a gnat and swallowing the camel of abortion, of transgenderism, and so on and so forth. That's the camel. And they're swallowing it. The gnat is climate change and things of that ilk. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that the climate's been changing since God created the earth. In fact, the biggest climate change in history took place at Noah's flood. The entire topography and geography of the world changed as a result of that worldwide cataclysm known as Noah's Flood. And the, the earth, according to the book of Romans, has been in turmoil ever since. All right. Verse 11. They tell him, hey, what are you doing? You can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. They weren't allowed to walk further than a mile and a half, by the way. He answered them, who made, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Well, I guess if this man had the power to heal me, then he also has the power to authorize me to carry my bed on the Sabbath. Luke 6, 1 through 5. Now it happened on the Sabbath, second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields, Jesus, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands, the Sabbath. 
And, his, uh, and some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? What, eat? No, rub grain between your hands. That's work. But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. David technically violated the Sabbath, but his men were starving. And he said to them, Jesus said this to the Pharisees, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Guess what, folks? God makes the rules, not men. Okay? And this tells us that God values people over everything else. Verse 12, Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Do you think they might have had a sneaking suspicion that it was Jesus? There really wasn't anybody else running around Israel in those days healing the lame, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. Verse 13, but the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So unlike many of the charlatans out there, Jesus didn't make a public spectacle of himself. His, his focus was on the one man who most needed his help. And as we see in the Gospels throughout his three and a half years of ministry, until that time when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and that one and only time that he publicly presented himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah, the Prince of Peace, he tended to keep a low profile because he knew a lot of people were coming after him for the wrong reasons. And his focus right then and there was on that man and his need. And that's how he is with each one of us. You've probably heard it said many times, and I believe it to be true, that if you were the only person on the face of the planet, Jesus would have died on the cross for you. That's how personal our God is, okay? The amazing thing is he can deal with us on a corporate level, but he can also come right down to the very personal between you and him. So verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him, the man that he'd healed, in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. More interesting language here coming from Jesus. Jesus found him in the temple. Remember, it was the Sabbath. The man may have gone there to offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving for his healing. That would have been appropriate. In fact, on other occasions, Jesus encouraged that very thing. Go to the temple and make an offering of thanksgiving for what God has done for you. But then, he, seeing you've been made well, you've been permanently healed of your physical affliction. But then he says this very interesting thing. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now on another occasion, when Jesus healed another man, his disciples asked him, how he got into that condition. Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus said, neither one. It's for the glory of God. 
So this doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus understood his condition, his previous condition, to be a result of sin. Not all, but many of our infirmities are the result of our own sins, right? What happens when you uh, consume an excessive amount of alcohol? Often you get cirrhosis of the liver, other conditions, other diseases. Um, many times our afflictions are a result of our own sins, but more important than our physical healing which is because we all like to feel good and none of us really want to die, although the only way... There's a song by uh, um, Alison Krauss and the... Uh, what's the name of that family? Do you remember, Georgie? I can't remember. She did an album with this uh, bluegrass gospel group, and one of the songs is, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Right? But more important than our physical healing... Because you know what, no matter how many times you might get, quote, healed, the body you live in now is temporary, period. I was just reading a list of centenarians, people that are 100 or more. It's kind of interesting, really, and amazing, some of the people who have made it to 100 and beyond, to infinity and beyond. But even if you live to 100, guess what? In fact, one of my favorite classic movie actresses, Olivia de Havilland, uh, just passed away a couple years ago. She lived to be 104 years old. But guess what? She still died. Okay? So at the end of the day, more important than our physical healing is our spiritual healing. And that's the point Jesus is making with this man. Jesus is calling this man. Now, Jesus didn't wait till this man came to a place of repentance. He graciously healed him right then and there on the spot. But then he says, now, take what God has given you and make something meaningful out of it. He's calling the man to repentance from sin. And I can't believe the number of times over the years where I've seen God do amazing things for people only for them to walk away and ignore him and do their own thing. It's really sad. It's, we take God for granted so many times, don't we? I'm always recounting in my own mind all the times he has saved me. And there have been a lot of them. And I have no doubt that he was there, that his guardian angels were there. And had that not been the case, I wouldn't be here right now. But again, this body, one way or the other, is ultimately going to pass away. The worst thing, he says, sin no more. And obviously we know that None of us can be perfect in this life, and John talks about it in the first chapter of his first epistle. He who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our defense attorney. And 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the idea when Jesus says sin no more, that should be the goal of every believer. Are we going to reach perfection in this life? No. The good news is when we fall short, God is there to pick us up, to restore us, to forgive us, provided we confess that sin and repent of it. Sin no more. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's a choice. Some might say, well, I know I can never do that, so I'm not even going to try. That's not the right approach, my friends. 
The right approach is to say, I know I'm not going to be able to be perfect in this life, but the one who is perfect will help me. And the one who is perfect will forgive me when I fall short, but my goal is going to be to sin no more. And the worst thing that could come upon this man and upon every human being would be to forever be lost in the fires of hell. Sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. The worst thing that can come upon you is not physical affliction or death. It is eternal spiritual death. That's the worst thing that can come upon you. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But fear him, rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says, Don't fear man, fear God. And the evidence that you fear God is that you love him and you obey him and you respect him and you follow him. Mark 8, 36 and 37, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Klaus Schwab and on and on it goes? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You can't take it with you, right? The only thing you can take with you is your, either your eternal salvation or your eternal damnation. That's the only thing, two things that can be taken with you. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing that this world has to offer can a man give in exchange for his soul. Jesus paid the price for our souls on the cross of Calvary. It's not wrong to seek God for help with regard to to the afflictions, the trials, and tribulations of this life. In fact, he wants us to come to him. But above all, we must seek him for the healing, salvation of our eternal souls. At the end of the day, that's all that really matters. Let's stand. As we lower the lights, get ready for our last worship song, I'm going to ask those who have a prayer request to raise your hands. All across the room, I see your hands. God sees your hands, more importantly. Father, we lift up to you. First of all, we've talked about physical affliction today. And Lord, it is significant. It is meaningful. And you've given evidence in your word that you do care about our physical afflictions. Even though these bodies will ultimately pass away, you do care. You do feel our pain. You do understand. And we lift up all those hurts, pains, afflictions, diseases, injuries, various medical conditions that might be represented here today, Father. Lord, we are thankful that those conditions do not spell eternal doom for us because if we have received Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have that glorious promise of eternal life and the promise of a brand new, imperishable, incorruptible, immortal body one day in which we will dwell for all eternity. But in the meantime, Father, we do need your help with our hurts, our pains, our afflictions, our illnesses. We lift them up to you now, Father, whether it would be cancer. Lord, that's an affliction that seems to be striking more and more people. We pray for healing, for comfort, for peace, for relief. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would graciously, mercifully heal those struggling with that affliction, Lord. And there are many others. Diabetes, heart disease, the list goes on and on, Lord. And you are the great physician. So we lift up all of these various afflictions and conditions to you. And we ask for your healing. 
not because we deserve it, but because of your great love for us. Lord, we lift up those with mental and emotional afflictions. Those can be devastating as well, Father, for anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. And Lord, some of those, again, are our responsibility, the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, the unforgiveness. Please forgive us and heal us and cleanse us of those unhealthy, ungodly feelings and emotions that we may be harboring. And we ask for deliverance from mental, emotional anguish. Lord, you promised us the peace that passes all understanding. Help us to claim that, to walk in that. Lord, as we talked about this morning, renouncing that victim mentality, I pray for anyone here this morning who's been trapped by that mentality, that you would deliver them this very moment. Help them to renounce it, to let go of it, to release it, and receive the victory that is theirs in Jesus Christ. Pray that for each one here today, Father, that we would all walk in the victory that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Lord, we lift up those with relationship concerns and issues, marriages that are troubled, damaged, or even broken. We pray for healing. Lord, because we know that it's your desire, you said what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Lord, we ask that you do a healing work in marriages that are struggling or damaged or broken. And Lord, for those here today in that situation, give them wisdom, give them guidance, give them the ability to uh, be an instigator of healing, reconciliation, forgiveness, restoration. Lord, if it's a friendship or a work relationship, a neighborhood issue, whatever arena of life, help us to be peacemakers, help us to be those who would bring reconciliation and restoration. We pray that you'd work in the hearts of those who may be at odds with us, soften their hearts, open their hearts, and let there be healing, we ask in Jesus' name. Finally, Father, for the economic issues that many of us are facing in these difficult times, again, help us to always remember that you're our provider, that we would never stop trusting in you, believing in you, hoping in you, and we pray for wisdom and guidance that we'd be able to manage whatever resources we have, as good as we possibly can, Lord, and that we would always remember to honor you and glorify you with those resources. And we pray that you'd provide jobs that might be needed here this morning. Lord, for perhaps pay raises that are deserved but haven't been received. Lord, we know that you have a multitude of ways of taking care of us and providing for us. Lord, we just lift that up to you and pray that you'd help us to not be fearful or anxious or worried, but to put our hope and our trust in you. We give you praise and thanks and honor and glory. And we offer up to you now our final song of worship and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.